Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is week 10 of our 2021 Truth of Happiness Dhamma study uh, on Tuesdays and Saturdays. Our Thursday class is doing one uh, one chapter a week. This class is on the hindrances, and I trust you've all done your reading and done your homework. Um, again, I started early with saying that these the idea of hindrances is often dismissed or discounted or um whatever in modern Buddhism, it's just not seen as important because there's no, uh, it doesn't aspire to a magical or uh, fabricated lofty goal of what you're doing in Dhamma practice. It's simply basic and sound um, cautions from the Buddha. These hindrances are, they are a manifestation of continued craving for and clinging to ignorance of Four Noble Truths. So they're they're primary and foundational to developing the under the, the Buddha's Dhamma to recognize and abandon these things, not simply to give in to them, but a mind a conditioned mind, a, con, a mind rooted in conditioning to continuing ignorance of four noble truths, which is the common human problem, will experience these hindrances as um, reason or justification for abandoning Dhamma practice. They they fit nicely into a self referential ego's view of itself. Well, this isn't for me because it makes me feel this way. Related directly back to dependent origination and the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha teaches when feelings such as these that I'm going to discuss in a moment arise, we simply take a breath, unite our mind back in our body, and abandon the feeling as temporary, as impermanent, as not me. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. And that is the best way to address these hindrances as they arise. So let me, I'm just going to read uh, the hindrances and talk about them briefly. Uh, I'm not going to read anything else out of the chapter because you, you've all read it. And uh, this really is a simple and direct uh, teachings of the Buddha. The first hindrance to uh, Dhamma practice is giving in to sens- sensory or sensual desire. And of course, that's everything that comes in contact with come in, excuse me come in contact with our sixth sense base. The sixth sense base is our five senses and the sixth sense of consciousness or thinking, but that's consciousness rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. And that type of consciousness, that type of thinking can only continue ignorance. So being mindful that it is, is sensuality or sensory indulgence. This makes me feel good or this doesn't make me, this doesn't make me feel good. I don't want it in my life. It's still giving into sensory indulgence. It's, it's being distracted by the uh, what would otherwise be the foundations of mindfulness, feelings and thoughts arising and passing away. So we do that off our cushion all the time, but we, we, we certainly do it on our cushion. The reason why most people feel that jhana meditation is simply too boring to do, meaning it becomes very uncomfortable for somebody who has great aversion to, to boredom, meaning there's not something that's stimulating me through sensory indulgence, will simply abandon Dhamma practice or will it abandon jhana meditation for something that is more distracting, such as visualization or chanting or bowing, singing, praying, uh, 
worshiping the Buddha. Those are all walking meditation, dishwashing meditation, anything that we might call uh, fabricated mindfulness meditation today. None of those are a substitute for jhana meditation because they only encourage further sensual stimulation. So that's the first hindrance to practice. And next is ill will. And we talk about this often in relation to the virtuous aspects of the Eightfold Path that we studied just a few weeks ago. If we are engaging in and harboring ill will towards ourselves or others, there's simply no Dhamma practice. That is an immediate um, block to understanding in this moment. And of course, these feelings of ill will are always changing. They're impermanent. But a conditioned mind will always generate more ill will about something or something or someone to, to continue to distract themselves against, away from what's occurring in this moment and especially Dhamma practice. So if I'm holding in mind ill will towards myself or others, there, there can be no Dhamma practice until I address that within Dhamma practice. So again, many people will take the fact that, well, I just can't stand myself when I think about this or I can't stand other people. That's too much of a distraction, so let me give this up. That's precisely the point or at that point that we practice Dhamma practice. And again, in a very impersonal and dispassionate way. This is simply what's occurring. I am engaged in this moment in self-loathing or other loathing. Recognize it, take a breath, and simply abandon it. And rest your mind in this moment. There is no value in blaming yourself or, or analyzing where the ill will came from because we know where ill will comes from. It's not from specific incidences. It's from ignorance of Four Noble Truths. So when it manifests in my mind, excuse me, when ill will is manifesting in my mind, I'm no, I know I'm stuck in eye-making and simply recognize it and abandon it. Excuse me. Okay. Um, ah! Almost thought I lost you. Uh, the third hindrance to practice is sloth or laziness. They're using kind of archaic words, but that's what's, what's there. Uh, torpor or lethargy or drowsiness. These are all kind of part of the same thing of indifference. And so it's there to recognize. If, I, if I'm making excuses for myself, a good example that I think we've all been through is meditating twice a day and, well, I just don't feel like it. I don't have time. I'm tired. I want to go to bed. Or my day was just too distracting. That's an aspect of all three of these, isn't it? It's, it's, an, it's an aspect of laziness because I'm simply too lazy to, to liberate myself. It's, a, it's an aspect of lethargy because I just don't care enough to liberate myself. And that manifests, often resistance to Dhamma practice will manifest as drowsiness. I'm simply too tired. Uh, I've heard many of my students talk about uh, they get very physically tired. They fall asleep during meditation. Well, there's two components of that. It might just be that you need more sleep. But often, resistance to Dhamma practice, resistance to liberation, manifests as drowsiness. And we simply shut down. We shut, and even in meditation, we'll fall asleep. Recognize that and address it. If it's a fact that you're not getting enough sleep, get, get some sleep so you can meditate. But also recognize that if you're getting enough sleep and you still want to go to sleep during meditation, or it feels like that's what you're going to do, recognize that as resistance to Dhamma practice. And simply work through it. Don't give into it. Because if you give into it, you're just giving fuel to the fire. The more that you practice wise restraint in that moment, you're diminishing its effect. You're deconditioning your mind towards that way of feeling and thinking. 
the next aspect is restlessness and worry. And that can be restlessness about our Dhamma practice, meaning that I want to, uh, I'm not entirely comfortable with the eightfold path. So let me add to it. Let me make it a nine or a 10 or a 12 fold path with other practices that I'm, I'm more comfortable doing. Or let me minimize the eightfold path and do what the, the one of the largest modern Buddhist schools is a mind-only school, meaning that all that they do is meditate. Uh, and I talked about this a little bit on Thursday, and I'm not going to, sometimes I'm uncomfortable specifically calling out a practice, but you all know what I'm talking about. Uh, so that the restlessness can arise during Dhamma practice when you want Dhamma practice to be more or less than it is. The Dhamma practice is just what it is. And we're either Dhamma practitioners incorporating the Eightfold Path as our Dhamma practice, or we're not. And that's not right or wrong. But as Dhamma practitioners, if what we want to be is to liberate ourselves through the Buddha's Dhamma, the Buddha would say, and he'd use these words, that it's foolish to engage in other practices and consider them Dhamma practice. They're not. The Buddha taught a complete path that leads to liberation, and it does it in a rather... rather um, short amount of time, meaning that it's possible to develop this in this lifetime, where everything else that I ever came across in modern Buddhism says that you just can't achieve so-called awakening in this lifetime. It takes endless eons, but go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, to me, that's just such a hurtful thing to tell anybody, although I bought into it for many years until I came across the Buddha's Dhamma. And he told me rather quickly that if you want to liberate yourself in this lifetime, do this and you will. And he was right. The fifth is, and worry is another aspect. I don't want to gloss over that. Um, immediate worry about what my life situation is certainly a self-referential view. And that will take us away from Dhamma practice. And it doesn't have to necessarily be about worry about my Dhamma practice, but just a, uh, a constant anxiety, which is an elevation of worry, isn't it? Constant anxiety about what's going on in the world. And that's so easy to fall into today, isn't it? For, on so many levels. Uh, a lot of people, um, and I've had students tell me this directly, people that were practicing for a few years, tell me that they're just too distracted by worldly events to continue with Dhamma practice. And some have said that it feels almost too selfish to engage in Dhamma practice when all these awful things are occurring in the world. Well, all these awful things that are occurring in the world right now have been occurring since the time of the Buddha and before then. And it's no excuse or reason to drop Dhamma practice. In fact, if you're seeing the world that way, it's the primary reason why we would engage in Dhamma practice so we can liberate our minds from that type of worry and anxiety, which the Buddha's Dhamma does directly. The fifth aspect is doubt, uncertainty, or skepticism. Uh, an aspect of impermanence is uncertainty, isn't it? It's because all things are impermanent that we fall into feelings of uncertainty, and a mind rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths wants one thing. It wants to be certain that it can maintain that ignorance. And when that ignorance is threatened, great anxiety, great worry, great restlessness, great dismissiveness arises. Why? Because it's challenging my view of myself in relation to the world. It's getting to the, the key theme of the Dhamma that we're going to get into in a few weeks in our structured study of Vipassana. There's the, the mind-only school that I mentioned earlier actually teaches that we should cultivate doubt in our Dhamma practice. It's a great part of that practice. And if we have any doubt, we should delve into it, we should analyze it, we should encourage it. Of course, it's exactly contrary to what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught that if there's doubt in our minds related to Dhamma practice or who we are in relation to the world, we should simply recognize it and abandon it. 
if we start picking at it, start analyzing it, we're only going to increase it. I used to have a teacher many years ago. His name was Arnold Patton. I think he's still around. Uh, he taught something that was loosely associated with some of the tenets of Buddhism, but he, he lost the rails a little bit later on. Um, but he used to say, which I think is true, what you focus on expand, which is another way of saying what you hold in mind is what you're going to experience in your life. And that's just what happens when we're clinging to these aspects of doubt and worry and skepticism. Uh, and again, as far as Dhamma practice is concerned, if we're being presented with the authentic Dhamma and we've experienced that ourselves from the benefits of it, to continue skepticism about ourselves and what we're doing in the Dhamma is simply another hindrance to, to Dhamma practice too. I think you all understand that. So again, it's simply to be recognized and abandoned in ourselves. Excuse me. Um, I should say here that it's not a... It's not wrong or bad or unskillful to find yourself skeptical skeptical, about what I'm saying or what the Buddha taught. But it is important to recognize that if you feel you're being presented the pure, the pure, the pure Dhamma, that you need to recognize and abandon that skepticism and engage in Dhamma practice wholeheartedly uh, without any reservation. An aspect of there's a, a, a Pali word, upeka, which means joyful enthusiasm with the Dhamma. And that's the attitude that we need to take to overcome all of these hindrances. And we are joyfully enthusiastic about our Dhamma practice because we have no doubt. We're not skeptical about it. We're in with both feet. We're fully engaged. And that is how Dhamma practice develops most effectively and most quickly. Now, to, to, to um, conclude this, and just to say this in a slightly different way than I've said already, if you find yourself experiencing one or all of these uh, hindrances, it doesn't mean Dhamma practice isn't for you. It means that you're practicing Dhamma practice correctly because you're recognizing the blocks to Dhamma practice. And again, when you see it manifesting in your life, and every one of you will, I have, it's simply to recognize and abandon. If you find that you fall into the, the, the notion that we should analyze it or use it as justification for ending Dhamma practice, you're just stuck in ignorance. So that's my talk for today. I hope you found it helpful. Um, so let's go around the room and I'd like to hear what you have to say. And I'll stop. I'll start at my top uh, left corner. Michael, how are you? Hello, everybody. Uh Good to see you. Uh, same here. Uh, I just like, uh, obviously, uh, hindrances and our distractions. And uh, to, to, to notice the distractions is, is a key to understanding them for what they are. Yes. Uh, and, and they're just that. And they take us out of the moment. And I like the way you had said, and you've said this you know, many times before, John says, my view of self in relation to the world. My view of self in relation to the world is from a deluded mind. How could that be right, right? Yep. So uh, the self that uh, we're um, relating to the world and how we see ourselves in the world is actually the not-self. And we're trying to sustain the not-self. So recognition, to me, uh, a big thing uh, is the recogni uh, recognition of uh, not-self. And that uh, pops up, the hindrances are not self. And the way I view myself in uh, relation to the world is 
is the not self also. Yeah. So that's the way I see things. So. You see them correctly, my friend. Hello, Julia. Good morning, John. Good morning, everyone. Um, John, thank you for the teaching. Uh, today, I'm just going to take noble silence. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here, Julia. Tim, how are you this morning? Yep. You know, I mean, uh, the conditioned thinking, you know, is is that not being aware of your self-referential reactions to the permanent phenomena. So, um, I mean, think, think it's almost almost a karma uh, type of situation mm. going on with conditioned thinking. You know, yeah. when you when you reaction to impermanent uh, uh, past experiences that are, you foresee a speculative future that gives you a present agitation <laughs> uh, so you suffer and so that's that's basically just being egocentric so we're going to talk about the hindrances you know all of them uh, I think if I want to go back I know we need to recognize the formal troops in this but you know one thing I'm starting to 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 to, to understand, and I've talked to Michael and Julia about this, we both, all of us have talked about this, is that the key for me has been understanding the, the, three, the three marks, specifically Anatta, because that is the ego, that not self is the ego, and if we're living in that, if I'm living in that ego, if I'm living in that, I'm, I'm going to be going through these, these reactions yeah. to, to these these hindrances, this permanent phenomena, everything, and suffering for it. Um, that, and you, you impose that suffering on yourself. On myself. Yep. And one thing I'm doing, and again, Michael and Julia have helped me out with this, is, and it's hard, this is very hard to do, and it's, it's actually exhausting sometimes, is being aware that I am experiencing a self-referential moment. And then being able to check myself, breathe, mm. maybe not meditate, but breathe, and start over again. Yeah. And that rinse and repeat can't get very frustrating. And again, here's the funny thing. <laughs> Michael pointed this out. When that happens, I'm being self-referential because now I'm beating myself up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> for, for having to go through it so many times. Yeah. So, um, That's, and that's one, brilliant. One last, one last thing um, based on right effort. And again, I have the dominant thing for this. So I was getting very frustrated about being tired, uh, having a lack of concentration, uh, not being not being able to get it. Okay, and I'm like, I said, well, you know, maybe there's something else going on. So I went to the doctor and I said, look, I, I want a blood workup. You know, not just your normal stuff. I want to know. I want everything. And it turns out that I was severely deficient on vitamin B12 and vitamin D. I mean, wow. severely. Now, those two vitamins directly affect concentration, fatigue, mood, <laughs> which can affect your quality of mind. So I'm on my fourth week now of injections and, and taking 50,000 units a week of D. And 
positive. My mood, my concentration is tenfold better. Wow. So I would say use the Dhamma for everything, not just your spiritual thing or whatever you want to call it, but also feel how your physical part of your life is going too. And, you know, don't, don't just assume that, well, I just, I just need to just meditate better. It could be something else too. So, and right effort, I think, I think right effort would be the, the part of, of the Dhamma. So anyway, sorry for the long speech, but that's what I get out of this. Tim, that's outstanding. And certainly looking at what's occurring, it was during Dhamma practice in your skillful desire to better your meditation practice that the inspiration came to go get a, a physical, go get a blood test. There's nothing that's contrary to the Dhamma about that. We're, it, 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 we're, we are human beings. We are a mind united in the body, and certainly the body will affect it. it this, is, this may sound a bit like speculation, and maybe it is. I would say that our attitudes about it, and actually medical, Kevin might want to talk about this, but medical science knows that the way we think about ourselves in relation to the world affects ourselves physiologically. Is that right, Kevin, Dr. Kevin? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The, yeah. the more I do this, the more I realize that all our thoughts and our relationship to our cells affects our health you know it's, it's just so obvious yeah and so taking it to the extent that tim did is is really to me it's pure dhamma practice and then the other thing you talked about tim is how self-referential views are self-perpetuating unless we have something to interrupt that process in the moment and you described that beautifully too that you recognize and and, and uh, uh, michael and julia were of course a great help in this to recognize that in this moment, I'm engaged in self-referential views is the essence of wise restraint. It's the essence of the Dhamma. So, of course, that would come up. In fact, I would say it must come up if we're actually practicing an authentic Dhamma. So, and John, I would say, please. I would say one last thing. That also ties into wise associations. Because having, having people that are engaged in the Dhamma understand where you're coming from to help guide yourself through this is very important. Yeah. Well said, Tim. Thank you. Good morning, Rom. Good morning. Um, yeah, I, I was one of the people that, that really uh, dismissed those, uh, those hindrances uh, for a while. Um, and actually, it's because I used the, the doubt and skepticism um, for a long time, as it, this is how I how I dealt with the world. Yeah, um, it was part of your own conditioned thinking about yourself, wasn't it? You found value in that. Part of my own conditioned thinking yep. is just you know this is how I navigated all this confusing stuff, especially in spirituality. Um, and then <clears throat> two things got me out of that. Uh, first of all, I started. I changed that uh, to actually studying Dharma because because I was skeptical of it. I was honest enough to 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 know that I had to if I wanted to dismiss this, 
I, I better have my, my ducks in a row. Yeah. You know, I better know what the hell I'm talking about here. And, uh, you know, uh, anytime you, you engage um, John in um, conversation, so to speak, uh, you better have your ducks in a row because uh, <laughs> he'll call you out on it. No, I won't. And so... Uh, the Dharma study and and the engagement with with Dharma at the same time. That's yeah. that's what actually it just turned the, the, the doubt and skepticism into into a positive thing. And yeah. it it's you know it's the same kind of energy, but uh, it's it's used to um, to really investigate. And once you do that, and once you get really engaged in the Dhamma, you, you see that there is no room here for doubt. This is it. Um, so I wanted to just throw that in on the, uh, on the hindrances. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Ron. That, that, that's a, a, another good example of a hepasico. If you really want to know yep. if this works for you, you have to come and actually do it. And that means you have to engage in the practice as it's presented, not in the way you hope it would be. So thank you, Ron. Mary, good morning. Good morning. Um, I, I view the hindrances as, um, you know, I recognize them, but I, this is some of the hard work, you know. Yeah. This is where some of the biggest uh, resistance and conditioned thinking, um, I experience that when I'm, uh, or recognizing it when I'm reading this. Um, I think I like what Tim said in that this you have to be all in and in when and when the hindrances come up and you it, maybe it takes you a little while to recognize it you know that there's more work to be done um, and and leveraging the Dhamma in every part of your life is required when we segment or compartmentalize where this fits into our lives you know there's more work to be done so i appreciate what tim said about you know taking care of yourself and um as part of the dhamma i mean it makes so much sense it it represents full integration uh and and um you know, the Dhamma guiding in in real life, and that's great. So I'm happy for you, Tim. I hope you continue to feel better. Um, so thank you for this teaching, John. Thank you, Mary, for joining us. Good morning, David. Hey, John. Uh, hindrances are essentially the aggregates, and that's where our mass of suffering, mm-hmm. our misunderstanding... And I always like to associate these hindrances with uh, the seven factors of awakening. Uh-huh. Yeah. I I like that because it's like a antidote. It's a way to develop your practice within the framework of the four noble truths. You know, Tim investigated. You know, within that he saw that. Uh, there was something not right, and he looked outside the box a little bit, and that, yeah. that was that was right investigation, 
not to <laughs> challenge every point. And you know, if you go down the down these factors, it's you know, it starts with mindfulness, and you know, be joyful, but within the framework of the uh, the four noble truths. So <clears throat> I've always used that as a as a way to when I do have the hindrances arise, you know, what am I doing? How can I develop these wholesome qualities? And, you know, I can imagine the Buddha getting approached by the elder teachers and saying, these things are coming up out there and, you know, people are falling asleep and they're doubting. And he had to flesh out these core basic, you know, the three marks so you can just see how as a practical matter these teachings arose so you know i've always enjoyed uh this part of of the teachings so thank you yeah thank you david again well said and uh and related to what tim was saying the 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 buddha this whole thing what we're talking about right now what tim brought up what you just talked about david um relates directly to the Buddha's own awakening and what he recognized uh, and and developed a profound knowledge. The Buddha went through periods of severe asceticism, which would, in modern days, might say, well, I, I know that B12 and vitamin D would help me, but I'm an ascetic. I can't take it. I won't take it. I'm liberating myself through... <laughs> through asceticism, which is only, as the Buddha said, is only painful and ignoble. The Buddha taught that as human beings... We need four basic things. We need food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. That hasn't changed at all in 2,600 years, has it? But he, didn't, he never said that we should deny ourselves food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. He said when it's appropriate, we should seek those things out. Why? Because we're not supernatural beings. We're human beings, and human beings need these things. So it, again, it's pure Dhamma practice, what, what Tim was describing. To, to, I, mean, I think in a way, Tim, you, you, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but you calmed your mind enough that you could see what was practically important to you. Is that a, a correct statement? I think it was just a profound uh, understanding uh, of, the, of, of, of using right view through jhana meditation to recognize what was really going on, not what was not not some speculative assumption of what was going on yeah. through the ego, but being aware of. Just lo- almost logic, if you will. Yeah, and logic. That is. So, yeah, yeah I, I, and I'm, I'm glad you used the word because the Buddha. It doesn't. It doesn't qualify the Buddha's Dhamma as something special, but it's the Buddha's Dhamma is entirely logical. Once we experience it, it makes sense. You know, this is this is of course this is what we should do as human beings. Why? Because we're human beings, and it's just that reason, not because John Haspel says it or the Buddha says it. We continue to engage in in right behavior right dhamma because it works for us it works for us as human beings kevin how are you very good john so yeah and i was um just that whole thing about the four necessities we have and medicine is one of them yeah it's um it's really important yeah um i just had this little reflection that i wrote so and it's just a recapitulation of what we've been talking about really that the ego self always tries to assert itself during meditation. The not self intrudes and brings with it these five hindrances. 
not self wants us to doubt our practice, doubt the possibility of enlightenment. It exhorts us to attach ourselves to the phenomenal world through our desires or through our grudges. It Mm. wants to numb us into stupor or whip us into a frenzy of activity and worry. Through right effort and right intention, we will forge through the middle way to empty ourselves of these hindrances and of anatta. Just that sort of distills that down. Also, I just want to thank you for the course. I'm, I'm so glad to have completed it for the fifth time for me. Oh. And uh, it's just that the Dhamma becomes more and more clear with each repetition and each reinforcement for going through it. So mm. thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Kevin. And thanks for reading those brilliant words. <laughs> Jen, how are you? Did you say Jen? Yes. Hi. What did it sound like? Hi, everybody. I don't know. Am I mumbling again? No, not at all. <laughs> um, so the, I, I find that the hindrances are kind of like a tool belt, valuable tool belt for even off the cushion um, to recognize eye making in moment to moment life. Um, and see where you are taking things personally. Um, I find that the hindrances kind of are like a litmus test to, mm. um, you know, how I'm thinking about stuff. So, yeah, so that's, that's valuable. Like, you know, I'm just in my day, I'm making along through my day and then suddenly the hindrances come into my, oh, this is your, this is uncertainty or this is doubt. And then it kind of brings me back into, uh, you know, the right orientation. So, um, and then also what I wanted to say was just, um, in reference to Tim, what you were saying, I mean, I didn't even realize but as soon as like even this morning when I just saw your camera on and and smiling, I, I just I felt relieved for you. Um, and you know, it's so valuable that you pushed through all that karma yeah. and stick stuck with it and um, you know, reunited your mind and your body and saw that, you needed something, you know, like that's so valuable that I'm really touched by it. And I'm, I'm really, really happy for you. <laughs> All right, Jen, thank you so much. The, uh, you're expressing in such a beautiful and heartfelt way, how important what other people might see as really irrelevant, meaning these hindrances. And he also pointed to the brilliance of Siddhartha Gautama to actually teach this and emphasize it because it would be easy to overlook this because you could say, well, this, you know, well, I don't want to look at the negative thing. I don't want to, but the Buddha, this is Dukkha. David said, this is, this is an aspect of five clinging aggregates. And it is, and it's, it's what we, it's what we must look at as Dhamma practitioners and have the courage to do it. And when we recognize one of our own, meaning Tim, that actually does it, it is inspiring in that way. I know your 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 tears are, are tears of joy and inspiration, aren't they, Jen? And and seeing another sangha member actually develop the dhamma, 
in, yeah. in such an authentic way. I think we all feel that way. So thank I you. I think Tim. also to know that, um, you know, you're just that you and your explanation underscored the help that you were getting from, from Michael and Julia, you know, that just yeah. touching as well to know that, you know, I mean, I, that's been my experience as well as other song members are the ones that, yeah. you know, help you see what you're doing. I, 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 you've heard me say this often. I've been involved in many different and some, you know, sometimes major worldwide uh, Buddhist organizations and temples and centers. And uh, I've never, ever experienced a Sangha like this. But the difference is that this is a well-informed Sangha that's actually practicing the Buddhist Dhamma. And so we're able to, to support each other. This is why the Buddhist told Ananda, his cousin, that the most important aspect of the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, is a well-informed and well-focused Sangha. And this is such a great example of that. But I mean, every class is, isn't it? You know, we really support each other. and uh, It's just amazing. When you think about, um, there's four, eight, eleven of us on screen now. Four of us are actual Dhamma teachers. I mean, they're... They're certified Dhamma teachers. But then again, we all are. We're all teaching each other the Dhamma through Ehebasiko, through our direct experience, what we found. And it really is remarkable. So, Thank you, Jen. Matteo, how are you this morning? Matteo, where, where are you? I, I always forget. Are you in Italy or Scotland? I can't remember. Yeah, I'm Italian, but I'm based in Scotland. <laughs> uh, that, that's what gets me. <laughs> so, um, so in reference to what Tim said, again, so uh, I have a, like a, a story about the B12 and vitamin D. So I remember I started to check every year my blood test and urine like about 15 years ago. And I think it was related to one hindrance that is anxiety. Because when I was talking to people, they told me, I said like, oh, I want to check my blood test and urine. Everybody was like, why? You look, you look beautiful. You're healthy. Don't do that. But in result, like, because... My idea is that most of people, they don't want to do that because they're worried they get some bad results from the blood test, they get yeah. sick and die. And, and that, I think, is anxiety. And they, they, they transmit that, this anxiety, like, oh, don't check, because otherwise maybe they tell you something bad. And it's kind of silly, you know, because if, if you check, maybe it's not so late to, to feel better for your body yeah. and mind. And... Um, you know, it took me like a while because the first two, three years, well, anytime I had to book an appointment, go to the doctor, I got nervous. Uh, and uh, and then it just became another habit because uh, I remember one of the sutra, I can't remember which sutra was, there was a, a monk talking to a priest that uh, they say like, uh, that's pretty much what Mike say, that's when you realize that the word is a, is a perception of your mind, you're finally free. Hmm. So, and then I realized that it's okay. It just for me to drink tea was just like to go to get the blood test. It was just like a normal habit, and doing that like a, I got some bad results some years, and I I I never got worried after that. Like if I train my mind to accept whatever happens. Yeah, why well, so well said, Doctor Matteo. Um, why wouldn't we want to know everything that's going on in our body in our in our physiological makeup? unless we're afraid to know. And of course, it, 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 it makes complete logical sense to know, you know, if I'm, whatever, whatever might be going on uh, with me. But I'm going for a blood test in two weeks, and I didn't really say what I wanted, but I'm going to make sure I tell them to cover everything. So I know too. Um, I mean, if, if, 
if the blood test find it shows that I have a form of cancer that's going to take my life in three months, I want to know it. I don't want to not know it. And maybe there's something I can do about it, or maybe I can just simply practice the radical acceptance of a Buddha and and live the last three months in in uh, in joy and certainty rather than fear and uncertainty. And that comes from knowing, doesn't it? It comes from knowing and acceptance. Myself as a human being, you know. It, it, it again, we're talking about um, obvious things, but things that 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 we don't want to face about ourselves. And the fear of finding out that there might be something really wrong with me right now is rooted in what the Buddha described as suffering. Birth is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Aging is suffering. Death is suffering. It's suffering. Those aspects are suffering because we resist them. We don't want to have a human life, which first requires birth. It does require occasionally being sick. If we're going to have a human life, most of us are going to age. And at some, at, at every point, at, or at every human being, is going to die. Why don't I accept it? Because I have fabricated myself into a permanent being that will somehow last forever. Why? Because I'm so enamored with a, this fabricated view of myself rather than a realistic view. Epicico. Thank you, Matteo. Rick, how, Rick, is this your first time joining us on a Saturday? Hi, John. Hi, everybody. Yes, I, I attended my first ever uh, two Tuesdays ago, yeah. and I plan to alternate between Tuesday and Saturday due to other things. So, so it's nice to be here this morning. Welcome, Rick, to our Saturday Sangha. Thank you. And um, I'm actually, I discovered John's website uh, about five weeks ago and started the Truth of Happiness course, so I'm obviously a couple of weeks behind officially. I just ended chapter five and I'll be writing some, I'll be reflecting and writing some paragraphs and sending them to you uh, a little bit later today, John. Great. And, um, but I am familiar with the hindrances and it was interesting because I, uh, I accidentally set my alarm wrong and I got up at 8.16 this morning about 14 <laughs> minutes before the class was to begin, had to feed the cats, do all that stuff. And um, so because I was so sleepy when we started the meditation, and I, I, I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, but I associate that with sloth and torpor. You know, there was a certain amount of lethargy as I was. And, of course, I was afraid of going off into the lethargy again, back into dreamland. So I, I noticed this about myself in the mornings anyway, just to get myself going. I'll often have like a Led Zeppelin song going off in my head, just driving me <laughs> to feed the cats and do all this stuff. And I was, doing, I was having a lot of frivolous mind chatter going on in my mind, trying to keep me from going into the lethargy. So it was like restlessness and worry because I was afraid of going off, so I had both a yin and yang of restlessness. Mm. What I noticed about my practice in general and this morning, however, is that um, it doesn't matter. I'm doing 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening right Great. now. We did 20 minutes this morning. It doesn't matter if I'm doing 5, 10, 15, or 20. It's usually the last half a minute that I start to settle down. <laughs> I don't know That's why. great. That's and, great. Uh, yeah, and I mean, so I, I approached it the same way, like, as you say, you know, I, when I recognize the thoughts and the feelings coming up, I just relax them, relax my body, come back to my breath, but sometimes mm -hmm. it takes a little longer, so usually during the last minute or half a minute of the meditation, that's when, and I'm just waiting to hear John's breath right before he says, notice your, 
and that's how things have been going. So anyway, uh, I really enjoyed today's class, and I look forward to uh, officially getting to that chapter as well. Thanks. Yes. Uh, thank you, Rick. And again, you're describing the development of authentic Dhamma practice. You're, you're noticing where it's worked, where it's working for you, where it's developing, and where you need to continue. Uh, that is, that's just pure Dhamma practice. And thank you for joining. Rick is joining us from uh, Baltimore, Baltimore. Is that right? Maryland, yeah. yeah. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Becky. Good morning, John. Good morning, everyone. I want to echo Kevin by saying thank you for the course again, John. Um, My pleasure. So happy that you continue to do this. Because you understand and learn more every time, of yeah. course. Um, I, I've enjoyed listening to what everybody has to say today. I recognize the hindrances all the time in myself. Um, one thing I learned today was from Mary. When she talked about compartmentalization, mm. you really do have to have the Dhamma with you or try to have the Dhamma with you throughout your day and I have in the last few weeks um, had more success at doing that than than ever before and it's been very um, it's been uh, very peaceful for me uh, to be able to do it um, of course it's still a roller coaster but at mm. least um, you recognize the roller coaster and you're able to uh, just deal with it as you go through the day. You can, you can, you come back to your breath. You realize that you're taking something personally. Uh, you can tweak yourself back into right view. Uh, you can think about what your intention was or what your intention is and get yourself back on the right track. And um, what I, the other thing I learned today was that I do realize that I have uh, not been meditating as as much or as long as maybe I should because I've felt that, well, I'm feeling pretty good, so maybe I, I don't need to meditate. <laughs> uh, and so that's one thing I learned today that, that was very helpful and, and will get me back on the right track. And I love what Rick said because that's basically my meditation. It takes, it doesn't, I usually meditate for at least 20, sometimes 30. It still takes me to the last maybe five minutes before I get to that, that space where I feel like my mind is not jerking me away like the elephant in the, in the Suda. Uh, I don't remember the name, but the one with the elephants tied to the post. But anyway, yeah. thank you all. I enjoyed this morning very much and just happy to be here. Uh, thank you, Becky. That uh, uh, Again, you're, you're talking about 
the recognizing the development of dhamma practice of, of increasing concentration and that's not a um that's not a negative thing by the way that you you recognize that the last half minute of your meditation seems well concentrated or the last five minutes and and it, it could lead to dismissing the, the the previous time but all of that shows the the de- development of concentration that's the point of jhana practice it's not that we 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 decide we're going to meditate for 10 minutes we start and immediately our mind is well concentrated and we don't have a thought or a feeling we do that's the, that's why the buddha taught that and as long as we continue to engage in both of those aspects of jhana meditation noticing that we're distracted by a feeling or a thought attached to a feeling and coming back to our breath both of those components is jhana practice it's not just being mindful of your breath because then there's no recognition of the interruption of conditioned thinking. So that, and you also said something else about um, recognizing that a feeling is impermanent. So no matter how strong the feeling is, I come back to my breath. And I'm, again, I'm interrupting that constant process of maintaining a conditioned way, an ignorant way of living in the world. So what a, what a brilliant class this morning. I think I say that every class, but they, but they are. Um, does anybody have any questions or comments before we finish with Meta? No? Well, again, thank you for a great class. Uh, next week, we're going to be looking at the precepts and the paramitas and uh, take what it means to take true refuge. And then we'll conclude on next Saturday's class with the fire discourse, and then we're going to get into something else. But we'll finish with Meta, as we always do. Oh. There it is. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. Unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. 
If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.